We're in the second week of this series talking about what it looks like to really move forward in faith. Uh, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and this, uh, sometimes it's easy to get off track. Uh, these sermons really help us to know what are those three big ideas that will really help us move forward. Or maybe, maybe you're just starting faith to begin with and, uh, or interested in faith, and really these ideas are what the foundation of faith is that form what it looks like. And so uh, last week, you can go back and listen to that. We talked about what it looks like to fight for joy in Jesus. But today, uh, we're really talking about the idea of church in general. And church uh, is often thought to be irrelevant. Um, it, even if you're a Christian, it might kind of get in the way. You've got your life that you are interested in living, and church is kind of a Sunday morning activity that kind of gets in the way of the life that maybe you really want uh, to have. Um, or if you're not a part of uh, church, then church is definitely thought to be kind of an irrelevant thing. Maybe at best it helps uh, with giving some morals to some people. Um, but the reality is that understanding what church is and um, experiencing what church is as God intended it to be is the key to becoming the person that we are called to be and to getting the life that God uh, has called us to have and really experiencing the joy that God does desire for us. And so I just want to talk about what really is church and why it matters for our life and, and then what that means for us. So to begin with, let's just ask this question, which is, what is the church? What is the church? If you ask most people and say, hey, what is the church? Just describe what church is. Most people are going to think of this. If you type into Google Images just the word church, this is the top stuff that comes up. This comes up also, but that's a little bit further down in the results. Maybe you thought that's what church is, and I'm sorry that's not what it is today. But this is uh, what most people think of. They think of a place that you go to. They think of a, a place, a building. You may have even said, I'm going to church today, which gets the idea that church is this place or maybe a place that has various rituals and things that take place in it. Church is a place, but maybe it's a, church, a place where there's singing or, or there's, uh, depending on your tradition or where you've kind of grow up in or experienced uh, church, there might be uh, communion or confession or there's songs or there's a sermon. But, but church is a place or a place where activities kind of take place within it or different rituals or activities that happen. But that's not what the Bible says that church is. The Bible, when it talks about church, refers to it as a family. So when the Bible talks about church, it refers to it as a family. This is just uh, from one of Paul's letters to the church in Ephesus. And he says, talking about God, he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And what that is saying is that what the church is and who we are is adopted kids. That what the church is is a family that God adopts people into. It's not a place. It's not a place with different rituals and activities. What the church is is a family, which is why the most common language that the Bible uses when it's talking about the church is the metaphor of a family. In fact, it's interesting that um, in Paul's letters, I was reading this this week, in Paul's letters, 53 different times, 53 different times he uses the phrase, our Lord, our Lord. Only one time in all of Paul's letters does he ever say, my Lord. Now, that's very different how we often think about our relationship with God. We might say, my Savior, or my personal Savior, or my Lord and Savior, Jesus. But the individualistic kind of uh, me and God, or me and Jesus, and church is a place where I go to to sort of cultivate my relationship with God is absolutely foreign to the Bible. Um, the Bible, when it talks about what church is, is that it's a family. And so even the language of our Lord, our family, our Father, as Jesus taught us to pray, what the church is, is a family. And Jesus says this also. Um, it says a crowd, this is talking about Jesus, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And then he goes on to form this family, the church. And what the church is, is a family. Now, 
You've already heard that. I don't think that's uh, groundbreaking. I don't think that that's controversial. I don't think that that's um, anything really new for most of you, even though in our psyche, church still is a place. Uh, so even though we do, you know, in our psyche believe church is a place, which is why it's what comes up in Google Images and why we say we're going to church, even though that doesn't actually make sense from what the Bible talks about, you already know that, okay? You already know the church is a family. I don't think that that's anything new. But that doesn't mean what we think it means. To say that the church is a family doesn't mean what we think it means. See, because the language of family today is used very loosely, it's used very loosely. Uh, I was reading today an article where somebody said, I'm a part of the Pixar family, referring to just, you know, he's a part of that, he works at that company. Or um, I was also reading this week, uh, Sarah's um, uncle often gets us gift cards to Olive Garden. Um, and it says there, there and, and I was reading about this too, that they are a part of the, they use the language, the family of the Darden restaurants. So that's like an umbrella corporation, right? So we use that language with companies. We use it with businesses. We use it um, even just very casually. You might walk up to somebody uh, or maybe a waiter or somebody and say, hey, thanks, brother. I appreciate that. And that's very kind of common nowadays to use language of family language. That's very, very common. So when we think about the church as a family, we kind of go, yeah, of course it's a family. And, and Pixar is a family. And Olive Garden's a family. And, and the waiter is my brother. And, I mean, everybody's a family. Like, that's not, you know, that's not a, a super groundbreaking thing. But if we, if we want to understand what family meant when the Bible said, hey, what is church? You know what it is? It's a family of brothers and sisters. If we want to understand what that meant when they used that language, we have to go back a couple thousand years and understand what family meant back then, of what family was back then, because it's very different. We can't import our understanding today of family, which is used very loosely and casually, and everybody's your brother and everybody's your sister. We can't understand it today and go, oh, so that's what it means that the church is a family. We have to go, what did family mean to them? When the Bible chose the language of family to talk about what the church is, and that is what the church is, what did it mean to them? We have to go back and understand that. So let's do a little history, and, and I'll give you kind of three examples of this. Today, today, what, what's the most, and you don't need to like shout this out or anything, but today, what's, what's the most, um, what's the closest relationship that people have? It's probably a spouse relationship, right? If you go, what's the closest, most intimate relationship people have? It's probably the husband-wife, wife-husband relationship, maybe parent-child relationship also. That's very close relationship. Sometimes that actually, unfortunately, you know, supersedes the, the spousal relationship. But probably today, when we think about what's the closest relationship, it's usually going to be the, the, the spouse relationship. That's why it's a huge industry, you know, tens of thousands of dollars spent on that. There's, there's I mean, movies and media and everything about kind of romance, right? But back then, that wasn't true. I mean, you know this, even uh, people criticize this fact. Uh, back then, I'm not saying this is right, I'm not, I'm not uh, justifying this, but back then, in those times, often marriage was a more contractual thing, right? It was you had two families, and it would be beneficial for those families if you brought two people together to get married. Um, and you, you might even think, you know, sometimes it was even the woman was seen as property in some ways, and, and she, there was a bridal price or a dowry was paid for her. Um, and marriage was important, but it, it was definitely not seen as the actual closest relationship in their culture in that time. The closest relationship was your immediate family, especially the brother-sister relationship. The closest relationship, and this is th true throughout all kind of history, if you want to go back and look at different examples of this, and I'll just give you a couple, but the brother-sister relationship was the closest relationship. That was the most intimate. That was the most emotionally connected. That was the most like, man, this is my, the way that we think right now about husband, wife, and I'm not talking from a sexual standpoint or romance, but the, the closeness, the intimacy, the connectedness, the, man, I do anything for you. It was the brother-sister relationship. 
And that, and that was true for a long time. That's actually still true in some cultures uh, today where marriage is seen still a little more contractually. But let me give you a few examples of that so that we can understand because the Bible uses the language of brother and sister and family and we, we can't take our understanding of what that means. We have to go back and say, what did, what did they mean when they said that? So here's our first example. There's a man uh, named Archelaus. I think I'm saying that right, but I have no idea. But uh, there was a man named Archelaus. And this was Herod's son. So if you think about Bible, what you know of like Bible, Christmas story, Herod, uh, the king, okay, this was his son that became king. And he was horrible. Nobody liked him. Now, he's a, he's a Jewish king, okay? So the Romans would go into places, they would occupy the territory, and then they would set up often local leaders in those places. So he's a Jewish king in this area under the authority of Rome. And he was awful. People hated him. And there was thousands of people that actually left to go to Rome from Palestine. They left to go to Rome and complain to Caesar. Okay? They left to go, hey, we do not like this guy. He's awful. He's horrible. And there was a group of those people that were actually his blood relatives that said, okay, but we don't like him, but we're not going to say anything about it. So they went to this kind of tribunal to bring accusations, and they didn't defend him, but they also, they were really torn, history says, about whether they were going to accuse him or not. So they just sort of, uh, you know, voted, um, what's it called when you, when you, do, you abstain, basically, you know. So they, they, didn't, they didn't vote. But even that was controversial because they didn't defend him, but they didn't vote. Now, he heard about this. So he leaves. He's like, oh my gosh, they're in Rome. They're, they're you know, bringing these accusations against me. So he goes to Rome to defend himself. He goes to Rome to say, you know what? This is not true. I'm a good leader. I've got my face on a coin. You know, I'm awesome. And, and while he leaves, there's a group of people in Jerusalem that throw this big revolt. And some of those people were his brothers and sisters. And they join in. They say, we can't take this. They join in. And they actually do overthrow while he's away uh, what, his, his government for a little bit. Now, Rome is powerful. Rome doesn't like that. So Rome comes in and they destroy the rebellion. Okay? And here's what, here's what uh, let, me, let me just show you this quote and summary of this from um, a book on this history. It says this, the Romans quickly stomped out the insurrection and Augustus, that's the Caesar, and Augustus must have been in a particular good mood because he pardoned every single Jewish rebel. The Romans were seldom so generous. So all the people that rose up against him, he, Caesar actually pardons them. He says, hey, not a good idea, but I'm going to let you off the hook. With the exception of Archelaus's relatives, Augustus killed off each of Achilles's family members who had revolted, and here's a quote, because they had shown contempt for justice and fighting against their own kin. So he says, look, we're letting everyone off the hook, but you guys, you traded on your brother. You traded, you, you traded on your brother, and you know you can't do that. And so he kills them. That's how close the brother-sister relationship was. That's how important it was. That even if, even if they were your enemies, you were still like, hey, that's really low that you would go against your brother. Now, some of that, we, we've lost that, but some of that is still a little bit, and this is my second example, some of that is still a little bit in our psyche of the brother-sister, how close that relationship. It's still there a little bit. We've lost that mostly, but here's, here's how I know it's still a little bit there. Any of you between 25 and 35, you still have a little bit of PTSD because one of the most dramatic incidences in your childhood was this. This was one of the most terrifying things that you ever experienced because this is a brother killing a brother. And I'm joking, but I'm serious too because did you know this is, I mean, one of the obviously best-selling you know, Disney movies of all time and, and one of the most emotionally kind of gripping Disney movies. It's the only one where a brother trades on a brother. It's the only one where siblings trade on each other. Now, Frozen, they do, but then they come back together and it's all good, right? But this is the only Disney movie where the villain is a sibling, where the villain is your blood relative. And it's, and it's terrifying, right? It's, it, no pun intended. It scars you, you know, for life. <laughs> it's even interesting today. Today, you can read in the news all the time about parents killing their children, right? Horribly so. Like, you, you read that, I mean, all the time. And, and children killing their parents. And husbands killing their wives and wives killing their husbands. You hardly ever read about a sibling killing a sibling, about a brother killing a brother. So there's still a part of that that is still in our psyche, something about that. But let me give you one 
final example to understand what family, what brother-sister relationships meant to them. This is from the Bible, and this is a long story, but it really does get at the heart of the brother-sister relationship and how important it was, and therefore what the Bible meant when it said brother-sister. So here we go. This is a graphic story, but I think it illustrates well the point. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. So this woman, Dinah, she's going out to hang out with some ladies. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. He rapes her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah. He becomes infatuated with her, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. He's a sick freak. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. So you can even understand a little bit again of culturally how it was like, hey, I want this woman in some ways as my property. Now Jacob, this is Dinah's father, heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But his sons, so her brothers, were with his livestock in the field. The brothers are out working in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So this is two dads kind of meeting to talk about this. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Okay, the Bible's not condoning this, it's describing this. But Hamor spoke with them. So he, he's like, yes, this is not good, but let's kind of build an alliance here. Let's figure this out. Hamor, the father of the, other, of the bad dude, spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. So he's kind of saying, hey, you've got your village. We've got our village. Let's kind of bond them together. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Again, this is often how marriage was thought of back then. Brother-sister relationship was the closest. Often marriage was more this kind of bonding, contractual, beneficial thing to both families. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I'll give. So he's like, look, we can make this right. Whatever you say, I'll give it to you. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, the sons, the brothers, they start to come up with a plan. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully. So they're going to give him an answer, but they're really tricking him because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. The Jewish people, the sign that they were God's people was circumcision, and other nations didn't do that. And so it was a very, you know, it was like, hey, you're not part of us. It was something that separated who was who, um, a very painful way to do that. But it showed who was who and the covenant that the Jewish people had with God. And they say, look, we can't join with you because you're not circumcised. Now remember, they're, they're tricking them, right? Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, meaning circumcision. By every male among you adults being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So they say, look, every male in your village, all these grown men, they need to get circumcised. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son and none of the men in the village. And the young men, I made that part out, and the young man did not delay. I love how it says this. The young man did not delay to do the thing. You know, it doesn't, doesn't, it's like they did the thing, okay? Because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, talking about Shechem. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gates of their city. And they spoke to the men of their city. So they haven't announced this to the men yet. So they come to the men to say, hey, they're, they're gonna, we got it. We got the bride. It's, it's going to happen. They came to the men and said, these men are at peace with us. And everyone was like, yes, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. Yes, for behold, the land's large enough for them. Yes, everybody's cheering, right? Let us take their daughters as wives. Yes, let us give them our daughters. Yes, only on this condition. Well, the men agree to dwell with us to become our people. When every male among us is circumcised, uh, you know, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every 
male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now, you ever heard adult circumcision? Do you know what adult male circumcision sounds like? Probably something like this. That's, that's as close as I can That's as close as I can get to it. I can't. Uh, I mean, it was awful, right? Imagine that happening. Horrible, okay? Everybody is circumcised. I mean, they're in pain, okay? Here's what it says. On the third day when they were sore. So these guys, three days later, they're still sore, right? Uh, that was too good not to do. So, Because I don't actually know what it sounds like. I just imagine what it sounded like. Two of the sons of Jacob. Now, here's what happens. They're all circumcised. They're all sore. They're all in pain. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords while these guys are like dying in pain, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They go in first. They don't just kill everybody. First, they make them all do something awful and painful that they're sore about. They had to do the thing. And then they go in and slaughter them all. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob, so this is the dad, he didn't know about this. Okay, This was the brother's plan. Remember, brother-sister relationship. Jacob doesn't know about this. And he says... You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So he says, look, what have you done? We're not a huge, strong tribe. We don't have a ton of you know, military power. And now the other people in the land are, are going to be upset with us. They're going to attack us. They might, they might be against us. He's like, what, what have you done? So the father was willing to make this trade. He was willing to give his, wife, his uh, daughter, who had been raped, to this other man. And he wanted to have this alliance. But the brothers, that's not what they did. Because the brother-sister relationship is very, very close. And after he kind of lays this out to them, here's the response they give that shows that the only thing they're thinking about is the brother-sister relationship. Here's what they say. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And the story ends. The dad has all this logical argument of, do you understand what you've done? This is going to happen. Now this might happen. Now this might happen. We've made this deal. Now other, And all they say is, should he treat our sister like that? That's all that matters. You see, what is the church? The church is a family. But when we think of family, we think of something very casual. We think of something very um, just, you know, anybody can be family. But we have to understand what the Bible meant when it said family, if we want to understand what family meant, because it doesn't mean what it means today. It doesn't mean what it means today. The brother-sister relationship was the closest relationship that there was. And the Bible says, you know what the church is? It's a family. And, it, and the language that Christians begin to use is, you're my brother, you're my sister, which was very different. It wasn't like how it is today where you can call anyone brother or anyone sister. That meant this. It meant a revolutionary kind of love, a willing-to-circumcise kind of love. It meant a love that was it was absolutely, this, this is my family. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. That the worst thing possible was trading on your brother or sister. And the ultimate thing for your brother and sister would be, who cares about logic? Who cares about caution? Should they treat our sister like this? See, this is what family meant to them, which is why even when the Bible begins to talk about what the church means, it, it uses another metaphor, but that gets at this closeness, that gets at this intimacy, that gets at this unity. It uses the language of a body, which is obviously close and united to all its parts, but it says this, as in one body, talking about the physical human body, as in one body we have many members, there's hands and fingers and toes, and the members don't all have the same function, so we, again he's writing to the church, though many, we are one body in Christ. And individually, members one of another. See what it's saying? It's saying you belong, just as this hand belongs to this arm, 
He's saying you belong to one another. That's a closeness. That's an intimacy that says, I'm not just my own person that has my relationship with God. I am a member of a family. I am united. I am one with these people. I am, I am family, brother, sister, of what it meant to them. See, that's what the Bible says the church is. It's a family that actually belongs to one another. See, we, if, if you're a Christian, you are not your own. You are God's. But in being God's, you are also the person next to you. They belong to you. They are yours and you are theirs. It's a body. We, we are one, which is why it, it means that we, we share all that we are. We share what we do with our time. We share who we are with our life. We share what we have, our stuff, that, that everything we are. It says, I, I'm not mine. I'm, I'm part of a family, that kind of family. And so I'm united to you. This is what the Bible says the church is. So we may say, yeah, the church is a family, but do we mean this? We may say, oh, yeah, the church is a family. These are my brothers and sisters. And we may say that, but do we mean this? Because when the Bible and when God chose to say, what do I want to say that the church is? He used mainly the language of family. And he was talking about this kind of family, because that's what it meant to them. Brothers, sisters. This is what the church is. Now, the next question is, why do we need this family? Why, why is it so important? Why is that the way God set it up? Why not just kind of have individual people doing their own individual thing? Why is this family, this community so important. Why, why is that so important? Because, look, this is not just an idea. It's a command. It's not just an idea that God says, hey, family's really important, community's really important, just so you know. It's out there if you want it. It's actually a command that we, that we participate, that we are family, that we do belong to one another, that we do treat each other as brother and sister. That is commanded, and God says, you need this. Why? Why is that so important? Why is, why is family so important? Why is this the way God structured it versus just kind of us and him? I think let me give you a few reasons. First is this, and it, it really refers back to the verse that we just looked at, but God wants us to live in his love. He wants us to experience and taste his love. Not just to know about it, not just to hear about it, not just to read about it in the Bible, not just to have kind of uh, a knowledge and awareness of it, but he wants us to live in it, to be surrounded in it, to taste it, to experience it. That's part of what the image of a body gets at. See, if, if, you, if you want to know me and all that I am, if you want to know me and all that I am, what do you have to do? You have to come to my body. Now, I don't, I don't say it like that because that's weird, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, if you want to know me, come to my body. I don't, I don't say that, but it's true, right? Physically, if you want to get to know me and experience all that I am, however bad that is, you know, you have to come to my body. You can't experience me outside of me. But the same is true with God. You see, we want as Christians all sorts of things from God. You want comfort from God. You want peace from God. You want encouragement from God. You want forgiveness from God. You want growth from God. You want, I mean, there's all sorts of things in the Christian life that we desire to happen from God. But God says, if you want that, you have to come to my body then. The same way that if you want to experience anything from anybody, you have to come to their body. And he says, the church is my body. See, I think this is amazing because what it means is God wants you to live in his love. He doesn't want you to just read about it. He wants you to actually experience it. I mean, how amazing would it be if, if when you're struggling, you could go talk to Jesus? And when you're hurting, Jesus could give you a hug. And when you're crying, Jesus would be there to put his hand on your shoulder. And when you needed help, Jesus would be there to help you move. I mean, how amazing would it be to go to Jesus' body, his person, and experience all that he is? And we can't do that with Jesus. But the way that Jesus has chosen to have that happen is through his body, which is why the church is called the body of Christ, because he wants you to have that same experience. He wants you to have the experience of being hugged by God, of being, of being hand on the shoulder of God, of being helped by God, of being encouraged by God, of being served by God. But the way he says that happens is through the church. He says, this is my body. 
See, because Jesus does want us to live in his love. He wants us to fully experience it. A second reason that community, that this family is so important that God had set it up this way is because God wants us to know him. God wants us to really know him. And we can't know him by ourselves very well. He's too big. He's too complex. We can learn about who he is and get to know him more through other people. C.S. Lewis had this group of friends called the Inklings. And they were kind of this literary club, and they would talk, and they'd hang out, and they'd laugh, and they'd smoke cigars. And here's a picture of them. This is C.S. Lewis. This is, I don't, this is a guy in an afro. I don't know who he is. This is, this is J.R.R. Tolkien. And this is the friend that everyone has that never looks at the camera. Um, so, but one of these guys were the best friends, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. They were best friends. Okay? They loved each other. They were super close, super tight. But one of these guys dies. One of them dies. And here, here's what C.S. Lewis in a really honest moment says. I'm glad he died. At least I thought I was going to be glad he died. Because I thought with him dying, I would get more of Tolkien. Like with this guy out of the way, I thought, oh, now I get more of Tolkien's time. I get more of Tolkien's wisdom. We get to laugh more. I get more of Tolkien. But C.S. Lewis says I was wrong. Because there's something that the other friends bring out of the other person. He said, I'll never hear Tolkien laugh to a particular Ronald, uh, or a Charles rather, a Charles joke. I'll never hear the kind of laugh that Charles only can produce in Tolkien. I'll never hear them argue again in, in the same way that, that then makes the Afro dude you know, laugh in a certain way. He doesn't say that, I mean that. But he, there's, there's no, he's like, it, I thought I would get more, but I actually get less of him. Now, you know that, like, it's fun to hang out with one friend, right? But sometimes in a group of friends, it's like, oh, man, they're bringing this out of that person and this person, and, and it creates a different dynamic. But then C.S. Lewis pivots on this, and he says, that's what it's like with God. See, if we want to really know God, we can't, we think, oh, I can just get God, me and God. He says, no, it doesn't work like that. Different people bring out different things to help you see different parts of who God is that without that, you actually become deficient in your relationship with God. And here's the truth. God wants us to know him. God wants us to really know who he is. But the only way to do that is not, and look, I'm a huge fan of reading the Bible, but it's not just by you and the Bible or you and some kind of uh, euphoric experience or you singing in your car. It's you with other people that help you to actually see who God is. So first reason is because God wants us to actually live and experience his love. The second reason is because God wants us to know him. A third reason is because God wants us to grow. He wants to help us actually grow. And in order for that to happen, we need other people. This is a classic verse in Proverbs, but I, I love it because it, it, it really gets at this. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man or woman sharpens another. But, but how does that happen? Any of you ever sharpened a knife or stick of iron. Have any of you ever done that? You know how that happens? You've got to, it's got to clash. You see, here's the reality. You can think you're really patient by yourself. You can think you're really kind by yourself, right? If you're sitting in your room by yourself, you are so kind. You know, you are so gentle and loving. But what happens when you put somebody else in that room that's a jerk? You see, Christian community is actually designed to have you around difficult people. Iron sharpening iron might sound really inspiring, but it takes that to happen. It takes pieces of you getting, I mean, we, we have a knife sharpener, and you stick the thing in, and you grate it down, and you see little pieces falling off. That's what you need. That's what I need. I need someone to rip pieces off of me that are not good. That's iron sharpening iron. And see, God wants us to grow, but you can't do that by yourself. None of us can, because we think we're patient and loving and gracious and kind and gentle and, man, I'm, I'm so open-minded and I'm so, man, I, I'm, I'm awesome until I get around a difficult person. And then here's what we normally do. Oh, that person's toxic. I need a new relationship. But God actually says, no, that person, I intend to put you around a difficult person so that both of you start chipping stuff off the other. We need that. The only way that you and I will actually grow is not just being around people like us or even people that are awesome. It's being around people that are difficult. That's the only way we'll ever grow. 
the only way our patience will get tested. That our gra- How can you have grace? How can you be a gracious person unless somebody's sinning against you? How can you be a forgiving person unless someone's sinning against you? How can you be a person that is filled with peace, which is a fruit of the Spirit, unless there's war happening around you? You see, we need difficult people. God wants us to grow, and part of how he does that is he says, you need a family, you need community, and then finally just... And the reason it's so important is God wants to help us through life. Life is hard. You know that. Isn't life hard? Man, it's just difficult. And if you think, no, it's great, just wait, okay? Just wait. Then in a few weeks, you'll be like, man, life is hard. I wish someone would have told me that. Life is hard. Life is rough. We need help. And part of why God gives us community is because he says, I love you, and I want to help you. God says, I love you, and I want to help release some of your burdens. I love you, and and I want to have some people around you that comfort you in your suffering. I love you, and I want to have some people with you that really care about you. See, life is hard, and God wants to help us. Our tendency is independence. Our tendency is to think, and sometimes even Christianly, like it's just me and God. I don't need anybody else. Our tendency is independence. Our tendency is to think we can handle it on our own, discern it on our own, grow on our own. But God says, you need a family. You need a family, which is why he saves us, not just in this individual relationship, but into, he adopts us into a family. He gives us brothers and sisters. He says, what you need is other people that are your brothers and sisters. And what they need also, look, even if you're like, man, I'm fine. I'm great. Me and God are awesome. You're not, but even if you think that, other people need you. you so, so many times, it, it, it's, it's, it's actually sad that some Christians go, man, I'm, I'm fine. I don't need community because me and God are doing great. Maybe that's true. But they need you. They need your love. They need your help. They need you to serve them. They need your grace. They need your forgiveness. They need you to show them part of who God is. And how selfish is it to say, I'm fine. See, God loves us, and so he wants us to live in his love. He wants us to know him. He wants us to grow. He wants us to help. He wants to help us in our life. He's so good, and, and the way he's designed that to take place is in a family. So what does that mean, then, for how we live? Let me give you a few things of what that means practically, then, how we live. And the first is really, it's simple. Here's what Hebrews says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, this is so important because everything that God wants to do in us as a family and all that he wants to do for us as a family, this little thing can slip in here and we miss out. This is why he says, look, I've got this vision for you of stirring one another up toward good works and encouraging one another and being built up into this community that God desires you to be and to know him. But here's, here is what will actually get in the way. Neglect. And I love that that's the word he chooses because that's such a, a harmless word in some ways. You know, if, if you think of the very active, like he doesn't say don't hate each other. He doesn't say don't... Um, don't be against one another. He, he doesn't say that. What he says is don't neglect to be around one another. You see, one of the biggest dangers to you experiencing all that God would want for you in community is actually neglect. It's actually to just say, hey, I'm not meeting together anymore, whether that's here on a Sunday or your community group, or we just start to slowly kind of neglect we, we would actually say, it's not that I don't like those people. I don't hate those people. I'm not against those people. There's nothing wrong with those people. But neglect means a drift. Neglect means a focus on other things. Neglect means our attention starts to not be paid here and elsewhere. And so really practically what it means to live as a family, as the Bible says, is don't neglect to be with one another. Families are together. Don't neglect that. Prioritize that. Otherwise, you'll miss out on all God has for you. A second thing is this. It's ownership. Part of what this means to live as a family is that we embrace the reality that we are a family and so we live like this kind of family. Not just family in some broad sense, but the brother, sister, circumcising, I'm willing to go all out for you kind of love. 
Do you embrace that? Do you embrace, these are my brothers and sisters that I love like that. That's a radical kind of love. And, and, and what, it means, what it means is that we don't wait for other people to do that to us. See, if you're a Christian, the other Christians in this church are your brothers and sisters. They're your brothers and sisters. And sometimes it's easy to go, well, I would love that kind of love. I would love people to love me that way. I would love people to encourage me that way. I would love people to reach out to me that way. I would love people to, to, to be that kind of brother and sister to me. Yeah, that would be awesome. But the Bible says, you're a brother. You're a sister. Own it yourself and live in that way. I love how Paul Miller, who's an author, says it. He says, you don't find community. And that's often how we think of it. I want to find a community that will love me that way. You create it through love. You don't find community. It's not something you stumble upon that people do to you. You create it. You, the ownership's on us. You create it through love. Look how this transforms the way you enter a room of strangers. Our instinctive thought is, who do I know? Who am I comfortable with? There's nothing wrong with those questions, but the Jesus questions that create communities are, who can I love? Again, puts ownership on you. Since I'm a brother here and the commands are directed to me, who can I love? Who can I serve? Who's left out? See, that's what it means. It means that we don't neglect. It means that we take the ownership instead of waiting for people to do to us. We say, I create it through doing it. I love. I'm not passive. I, I give it. And then, and then it also means that we, we love the people that God gives to us. And this is so important. We love the actual people that God gives to us. Not our desire of who we wish we could love, but the actual people that are there. See, there was a man named Bonhoeffer. And he was around during World War II, German, author, pastor, thinker, part of a Hitler assassination plot. And most pastors' bio doesn't go like that, but his did. And he, uh, during World War II, formed this underground community, this underground seminary. And uh, they, I mean, you know, anytime there's trials and, you know, stuff going on, you really can bond with the people you're with. And so this was a super close community, super close. They lived together. They, they were all, you know, in the same place, and they were focused on community. And Bonhoeffer, through this, years of doing this, he said, look, here's the number one thing. And I think, I think he's right in, in my experience, but I also think we should listen to him because he really lived in a close way the vision of community. He said, here's the number one thing that can kill community. Here's the number one thing. The number one thing that kills community is when you are desirous of a kind of community instead of missing the community that's right in front of you. Now, let me, I'm going to quote at length from his book, Life Together, and kind of point out some of this as we, as we get ready to, to wrap up. And... Here's what he says. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. See, we can look at people and go, ah, I'm different from them. I've got these differences and they're not like me in this way. And they're not, you know, the different age, different race, different gender, different family status, different whatever. And he says, real community is bonded by Jesus Christ and his work being the only vital thing between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another holy and for all eternity. That dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more than that. And he goes on. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. One that wants more than what Christ has established, this family, you don't really want Christian brotherhood. You're looking for some extraordinary social experience, which he has not found elsewhere. He's bringing his muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. Just at this point, Christian brotherhood is threatened most often at the very start by the greatest danger of all, the danger of being poisoned at its root, the danger of confusing Christian brotherhood with some wishful idea of religious fellowship, of confounding the natural desire of the devout heart for community with the spiritual reality of Christian brotherhood. In Christian brotherhood, everything depends upon it being clear right from the beginning. First, that Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, but a divine reality. We are family. We are brothers and sisters. Second, that Christian brother is a spiritual and not a psychic reality, which just means this emotional feeling that we have. Innumerable times, 
A whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream, this desire for something else, this, this extraordinary social experience. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely, so he says, look, this is going to happen to all of us, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. We come into Christian community and go, this is what it should be. This is what it should be like. But really, he says, it's a wish dream, and God will shatter it. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great general disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. God's grace has to create a disillusionment first. Only, only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it actually should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. He says, it's good that you're disillusioned. It's good because then you start to get past this wish dream idea. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. You may get what you want, but you lose the promise of Christian community that God actually holds out for us. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. This is so important. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community, the one right in front of you, itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, if you're not loving the people right in front of you, the family, the brothers and sisters, but are loving this dream of the Christian community, then you actually destroy it. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship. Because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ. Long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and his promise. He's saying we thank God for what is there instead of some dream of what we want. We do not complain of what God does not give us, we rather thank God for what he does give us daily. And is not what has been given us enough, brothers who will go on living with us through sin and need and under the blessing of his grace? Is the divine, of, divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this? Any day, even the most difficult and distressing day, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks? Will not his sin be a constant occasion to actually give thanks? That both of us may live in the forgiving love of God and Jesus Christ. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary. Because it, because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. When the morning mist of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even when there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, says this might be what the state is right now of your group, of your life, of your relationships. If on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. This is the last part. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, 
the more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, which we must realize. It's a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. So, what it means for how we live is we don't neglect to meet together. It means we take ownership instead of waiting people to give it to us. It means we cultivate thankfulness and love the people right in front of us that God has given to us. Now, let me just close quickly with this. How do we actually get that? How do we get this? Really practically, if you're not in a community group, join a community group. That's, that's the most practical application to this. But also this, confess to other people that you're in relationship with. Confess where you haven't loved with this kind of family love or where you have injected wish dream into your community. And finally, to get this, it's that our hearts have to continually over and over again see that this is how God has been to us. I love how Paul says this. He says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, although he's writing to them, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So he says, we've been taught by God to love one another. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that God uh, gave them this direct revelation. It means that we are taught by God by what he has done for us. The patience that God has shown for us, the love that God has shown for us, the grace that God has shown for us, the inclusion that God has shown to us, the giving that God has shown to us, the serving that God has shown to us, the bringing us into his family that God has shown to us. We've been taught by God for all he's done to us. Even when we take communion, we are remembering how we've been taught by God, that he would give his life, that he would have his body broken and his blood shed to bring us into his family that he loved us with a brotherly love that was so intense that though we were sinners, he went after us and brought us into his family. See, we've been taught by God to love. And part of how we get this kind of community is continually over and over again, especially when you feel like you're not getting that from other people, remembering and receiving from God who he is and what he's done so your heart is full and able then to love. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've given us family. I pray that even now as we sing and take communion, we remember who you are and what you've done and how you've given us a family to be a part of. Help us, God, to grow in this. Help us to, to love each other as brothers and sisters the way that you have loved us. Thank you, God, for wanting us to know you, for wanting us to experience your love, for wanting us to grow and for wanting us to be helped in life. The strategy that you've created of a family, I thank you for that, God. And I pray, draw us deeper into this. In your name we pray, amen.